0: You're listening to episode 54 of In Film We Trust, I'm Wayne. I'm Liam. A weekly podcast where we discuss, dissect, and deep dive all things film, from the obscure to the mainstream. And now, on with the show! Ah! Is it possible for a film to be so powerful, so impactful and so uncomfortably true that it not only shocks the general public but also leads to a change in government legislation? It's very possible that the topic of today's episode, Alan Clarke's Scum, did just that. A searing indictment of the British youth detention facilities of the late 70s, commonly referred to as Borstels, which candidly exposed all the horrific facts and hidden truths that the British people simply weren't prepared to hear. Today we're revisiting video-nasty territory, because yes, this film was initially banned in the UK and getting ourselves banned up in a borstal to experience Scum in all its violent, cruel, sociopathic glory.
1: It's funny in this podcast, Wayne, how everything comes full circle. Now this film, Alan Clark's film Scum, it ties into two of our previous episodes that I'm aware of anyway. That being Gus Van Sand's Elephant, which we covered last year, and also last year we covered Threads, Hmm. the British post-apocalyptic film. These are random occurrences, this wasn't intended, but it's funny in film when you deep dive them, how much things cross
0: over. They do, yes. Well, when you were saying Threads, all, all I could think of was English accents. <laughs> I know, know we're talking two opposite ends of the country, but with Threads, are we talking the British kitchen sink realism, something we have demonstrated our appreciation for? Oh, so you're unaware of the connection to Threads either? Not exactly sure. I thought you were going to connect it to Kill List as well, then that would have fed into what I just said. Right, but what, I- is, what is the connection you have noticed? Well, I'm going to explain to you, Wayne, right? This film,
1: Scum made for the BBC in 1977 as a TV film first, as part of Play for the Day, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Threads, that ties in, because I think it was the 1960s, there was a documentary by Watkins called The War Game.
0: The War Game, yeah.
1: Now, that pretty much became Threads, in a sense, very much of the same oeuvre. Hmm. But The War Game by Watkins was unbroadcast and banned for 20 years, Which, this film, Scum, was also banned for a
0: time. It was. Interesting. It is a part of the, as I mentioned the synopsis, it is part of the video nasties. You wouldn't necessarily tie it in, because we did a whole month on video nasties. Not necessarily the same kind of themes, but it's that very grey, brutal realism is, I think, what put it as part of the video nasties. Mary Whitehouse, of course. Oh, no, no. All Every, everybody's favourite boogie woman. <laughs> <laughs> not, the, not the biggest fan of this movie. There are reasons we'll get into, I think it was banned, but... But I can kind of understand. I've seen the war game. The war game, it was more like a documentary. It was like going into people's houses saying, okay, if this happened, what would you do? This happened, what would you do? And it demonstrated like bread lines and people queuing to get into bomb shelters and such. So yeah, that would have hit really hard, especially back then when you think of Cold War and nuclear weapon paranoia. But we can't leave everybody on the edge of their seat. (laughs) Why? Why
1: does it tie in with Gus Van Sant's Elephant? Because he was influenced to name that film Elephant because... Alan Clarke had a film called Elephant. Now, Elephant was about the troubles in Ireland, the mm.
0: IRA, etc. And interestingly, talking of how the both films being called Elephant, called Elephant for exactly the same reason, The Elephant in the Room, that big issue that no one is really talking about. And they're both tremendous films. I, I'll admit, I've never actually seen uh, Alan Clarke's Elephant. You say it's very good? It's very good. It's very good. It's actually got a similar style as well. You know... Because Alan Clark, the director of this,
1: was a master of the cam. Mm-hmm. You know, the cam wasn't all Stanley Kubrick. In no. this film especially, there is great shots, tracking shots, following shots, where you seamlessly follow a character. And mm-hmm. that happens in Elephant by Gus Van Sant also. But you mentioned everybody, especially the UK's favourite boogie woman. And yeah. I'm using that po- I'm, <laughs> I'm using that negatively. This isn't a woman who gets down at the disco on a Saturday night. It <laughs>
0: feels very appropriate, yes.
1: Okay, (laughs) we said this film was banned. Yeah. 1977? Yes. Therefore, Alan Clark, it necessitated that he made uh, essentially a remake of his own film
0: basically yes 1979 yeah I mean same writer even some of the same actors Ray Winston came back for it some of them were changed but bringing it back and then doing it as essentially a TV film which got banned again it wasn't until I think it was banned and then released at some point I think it was about 1983 but with Roy Alan Clark he was famous for his his social realism you think of directors now someone like Ken Loach who does movies like Kez The Wind That Shakes The Barley I Daniel Blake great films like this that examine the, the oppressed and The deprived communities, the fabric of British society, and those who are maligned within it. Because he had films like uh, there was Christine, which covered drug addiction. Uh, Had a film called Road, which was poverty. The Firm, which was football hooliganism, which is famous in the same way like Green Street is. How it dealt with.
1: You know how you are naming his filmography.
0: Yes. Please name
1: his vampire snooker film for us. He has a vampire (laughs) snooker film. No, he doesn't. He does. That is not a real thing. He fucking does. (laughs) I am telling you. Alan Clark <laughs> has a film about two snooker players based on, I think, Jimmy White or something's rivalry with another snooker player, Yeah, but they're vampires. And
0: I have the, no idea why this is a thing. Is that the title? No, I the, don't, the, I'm I, not sure of the title. I was going to say, is the title? I bet it's a pun. It's got to be some kind of a pun. And honestly, on the spot, I can't even think of a good one, so don't ask. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
1: How do you go from Scum? Great film. Yes. Made in Britain. Great mm-hmm. film. Vampire
0: snookers. I don't know. That that's a that's an incredible career detour right there. Where do you go for making this incredibly hard-hitting social realism? Someone described his films as bleak and lacking redemptive qualities. I'm not sure I'd entirely agree with that sentiment, but I can kind of see where they were going.
1: I'm not sure if there's redemption in this film because I don't think that's what it's interesting. It's making a political point. But look, let's contextualize Alan Clark. Where does Alan Clark come from? Well, in the 1950s, there was a movement. The angry young men they were a group of middle class and working class writers and playwrights and those who are associated with this movement john osborne playwright of look back in anger made into a terrific film starring richard burton and also alan here's a name silly toe Ooh, good name there <laughs> he wrote saturday night and sunday morning so these kind of gestated within the 50s these become a thing of course it was named the angry young men movement but you could almost link this to what came in the 60s the kinchinsky realism in cinema and there is a throughway there because you could almost say these guys the angry young men for example set up the Play for the Day. Mm-hmm. Now, Play for the Day was a, an anthology show that I ran from the early 70s, I think, till about 1980-something. 1980, 1980 and because of this, we had filmmakers like Ken Loach putting mm-hmm. his work on there,
0: Mike Lee putting his work on there, but above all, Alan Clark. So, he was a like kind of a central figure in this movement. I do like how we say those movements bleed into one for another. So, you have these movements in the 50s that go into the 60s, how they're kind of transformed by the time. Because it's weird how every single decade you have these new movements and you have these new attitudes coming on. So, it's reflective of the time period. Alan Clark is bringing up these issues like in Scum, issues in Borstals in the 1970s.
1: Right. But I, I think it's always important to contextualize because you can get too you know, quote-unquote fanboyish, and think, this person was a revolutionary. Yeah, But it's like with Tarantino. It's like Tarantino's quipped a lot of his stuff from uh, Jean-Luc Godard. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lineage to this. And it's the same as for Alan Clark. His work became gestated, come into fruition, because, you know, the playwrights, John Osborne, the novelist, Alan Sillito nobody's starts in a novel
0: from scratch it's always somebody's turning the next page it's the standing on the shoulders of giants right. thing no one just invents this thing on their own they always owe it to contemporaries or their predecessors it's an and evolutionary process. exactly and roy minton who wrote this like say alan clark collaborated on the you know, the, the tv show and then the movie he wrote a lot of TV theatre scripts. He wrote one called, it was about a woman's prison because obviously we're talking here about Borstal, a boy's prison. He wrote one about a woman's prison which is called Scrubbers. Scrubbers. And I, I'm sorry, after Withnail Nye, that is a word I can't take seriously. Is that because yeah. you
1: keep shouting it to people out your car? I did, I used to do it all the time. Yeah, driving exactly. by, it's called,
0: Scrubber! Shouting it out of the window. That's a film though he's disowned that because the script was apparently altered without his say-so, so he essentially disowned the film. But it did really? like that kind of marriage between them, that social realism, mm. marriage between them. And the BBC, there was kind of a camp pain against this film led by Mary Whitehouse unsurprisingly and what got me interested in it is the BBC they banned it because they quote doubted its veracity. Now you do wonder was what was going on at the time which we'll get more into later, was it kind of an open secret? And that's why it was banned. There was kind of a shame, like they didn't really want this being shown to the public. They weren't ready to handle it yet.
1: See, there there's several reasons. And I never think when you when it comes from an official source, when it comes from the authority themselves, you're never going to get the true picture. But one of their points of contention was this film placed too many isolated, in their words, incidents into one single Borstal. And they're saying these incidents, they may have happened, but they didn't all take place in one place. They happened in a Borstel in, you know, X, Y, Z. Mm -hmm. They took place over many years, over many different Borstels, not one single institution. And I don't know if that's true, because... There's nothing in this film, I would say, that is overly sensationalised. I think it's almost the
0: opposite. I can't see anything in this film not having happened in real life. Yes, I understand you're saying this whole thing about...
1: They've condensed the, it into one space. They've
0: condensed, but if you were going to do it uncondensed, then the film would be bloody days long. So why would you, why would you do that? The idea is to highlight issues and kind of condense it, because the film's only just about just over an hour and a half. Yep. So it's a pretty breezy film, yep. but it condenses all of these things into one place, into one one borstal.
1: But this takes place in a, like a beautiful... I know this it sounds as disturbed as it is because, you know, you had the recession in the 70s in the United Kingdom, for example. But it's almost taken the place in this this beautiful kind of cultural landscape. You had these filmmakers that we've mentioned, Ken Loach, Mike Lee, Alan Clark, and they're having their say. They come from a working class to middle class background, and that wasn't necessarily available in the prior decades. It was a very upper-crust you know way of being for example even the bbc itself and these kind of broke through with the 50s the 60s into the 70s as we're going and i don't think it's ever been the same if you look at british actors now even to this day a lot of them have gone back to being somewhat upper crust it's Mm -hmm. become quite elitist and it seemed like this nice cool experiment that happened for a, de- a decade or two that has
0: kind of vanished in many ways. It was kind of a time where you could get really down and dirty before just, so. b- before people started considering certain roles beneath them. One tagline for this film was actually the film that scandalised the UK. So you could see actors looking at this and thinking, maybe that would not be good for my career. I don't want to be remembered as the person who was on the poster of this film that caused an outrage.
1: If you want to look on the flip side of what I'm saying, you know, this beautiful experiment. As you said, we had the Mary White Houses, who was a leading figure in this group alongside Cliff Richard. And met, uh, yeah, who, who takes Cliff's advice? Let's be honest. I, I, I can see why he would right, be part alongside of Alongside Cliff Richard and others, but they are like two famous ones, right? <laughs> they had this group called the Nationwide Festival of Light. A Christian, anti-permissive, because this was Mary Whitehouse's thing. She thought society was becoming too permissive, and especially mm-hmm. in the media landscape. She thought it was becoming too sexualized, mm-hmm. too leaning in towards violence on TV. So they had this group, the Nationwide Festival of Light. It was a group against the Burgeon and Permissive Society... against the things I just labelled, right? And you're thinking, okay, this must be fringe. These are a a few weirdos on the side, but this group, it culminated in a rally in Trafalgar Square that was attended by 50,000 people.
0: Mm, 50,000 like-minded nutters. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) pretty much. These movements are never just a few people. When you're talking about these movements that got all these things banned, all these things censored because it was too permissible, I guess they were looking at the 60s and just thought, this is where the country is sliding into depravity. We need to go back but they don't go back they overcorrect like, right we have to go completely the other way let's let's just be prudes again <laughs> i don't know what happens it's like
1: for every new idea now every new idea is not necessarily a positive it's essentially just a new idea it doesn't necessarily have a moral implication but this is happens to this day it, whether it's the, tr- the trans movement and people are trying to dismiss that it's like oh no it's it, it's like they can't understand this new thing or not even a new thing but this new thing within the mainstream landscape and it's so silly always to be
0: fair I think a lot of filmmakers would take this kind of protest as kind of an endorsement let like they say so. hey, we're the group that Mary Whitehouse and Cliff Richard don't want you to see I'd see that film <laughs> I'd put that on the poster does, look does
1: anybody want to be endorsed by Mary Whitehouse or Cliff Richard not especially no Sir Cliff Richard <laughs> Sir
0: Cliff Richard sorry
1: does anybody they want that endorsement
0: i don't think so but then again if, if cliff richard did endorse a film that would have the opposite effect now i'm like, Ma- not seeing
1: that <laughs> now look mary whitehouse our favorite boogie woogie <laughs> she ties into this film again right because it got
0: cinematic release <laughs> go away mary whitehouse I know, what is wrong with her she's like the ghost that just won't stop haunting she's haunting our podcast people might actually think we like her because <laughs> we talk about her so much
1: <laughs> <laughs> right so As we said, the 77 version for the TV, for the BBC, it got banned. wasn't Mary Whitehouse, but she probably had something to do with it. But 1979, they make a feature-length version, which which got shown at the cinema, right? 1983 gets shown on TV for the first time, Channel Mm -hmm. 4. Channel 4. Right, what happens? Mary Whitehouse, she was so incensed that this was on TV for everybody to see, Wayne. The kids. Think of the kids. Think of the children. Think of the children. So she took it to the International Broadcasting Association to court for daring to air it. Do you know what? She fucking won the case.
0: I actually won it, yeah. But do you know what
1: happened? She lost it on appeal, Mm. leaving her with a lengthy legal bill. But lucky for these upper crusts, Wayne. (laughs) This was paid by an unnamed donor. So she never had to pay a penny. Some rich...
0: Cliff Richard. Cliff Richard. (laughs) Cliff Richard. It maybe was. Did Mary Whitehouse have a day job? This, I mean, must have been, I, this must have been all she ever bloody did with it. I think this was her day, job. Probably, yeah. But for those of you out there, probably in the Americas, I'd say, who are wondering what exactly Borstels are. We've heard we've heard this, used this word a couple of times. Well, Borstels were essentially what you'd call young offenders prisons or young offenders institutes. If you think of the UK in like the Victorian times, you think of the writing of Charles Dickens, like Oliver Twist. You had the workhouses where they would send bad children, they'd be worked, it'd be inhumane conditions which would be banned. But those were phased out and you had in what's called Borst Apparently, the name comes from a Kent town where they were first established, Borstal. I didn't even know Borstal was a village. Yeah, it actually was. I had no idea, right? The first
1: Borstal, you know, as the institution, was set up in Borstal Prison. It was mm. an actual prison to start with in the village of Borstal, 1902.
0: But within this prison. You know, they opened the, the Borstel's for children. Mm-hmm. And the court sentencing, when you were sentenced to this place, you were sentenced to what's called Borstel training. Because watching this film back, this was someone I'd forgotten because I'd seen this film years ago. Yeah. The idea was when they're in the prison, they're often referred to as trainees, not inmates. I was kind of confused, but it's because you were referred to as uh, going for borstal training.
1: Is that what they called it? Was that supposed to be their quote-unquote
0: humane... I think it was their euphemistic way of putting it. You're not it. a prisoner. No. are training you. Exactly, you're a trainee. It's like a euphemistic way of putting it. And the Borstels themselves were out-abolished in 1982, very close to the time when it was actually released.
1: Well, they never went nationwide until 1908 Borstels. Mm-hmm. And as we said, they were often a breeding ground for violence, for bullying by both warrants and inmates themselves. And as you said, it had this heavy focus on authority, regime and discipline. These were originally for offenders under the age of 21, though in the 1930s, this was increased to the age of 23 it's not
0: surprising that and you say about they're meant to be for they were supposed to be for education the idea was the rehabilitation the, the theory of catch them young you catch a young offender you set them straight you stop them from going to a proper prison when they're older but it didn't always work like that there's an author called Bernard O'Mahony who he said Borstal institutions were originally designed to offer education regular work and discipline so rehabilitation basically though one commentator has claimed that more often than not they were breeding grounds for bullies and psychopaths you put all these people into one building these similar kind of personalities these similar tendencies that's what's going to happen those kind of people are going to rule the roost and it's just going to spread basically like a virus to the rest of the trainees
1: well the criminal justice act of 1982 abolished borstels and replaced them with you know quote unquote the more friendlier term (laughs) the youth custody centers but in the uk we have we had an empire at the time Mm -hmm. these were all throughout the commonwealth they were yeah they weren't just mainland UK. And to this day in India, there are still several dozen borstals. There
0: are still some Bor- uh, borstal schools, I think they call Borstel them. Schools. I'm guessing, is that, is, just that- another, is that another euphemism they're going for? <laughs> and corporal punishment. Which, you know, this is we're gonna contradict this like hell later on. It was banned or highly restricted. But you think a bit like that, it's easy for someone like that to go unobserved. I think was only the traveling magistrate allowed to inflict the punishment? You'd maybe get like the cane, but then again, that wasn't so much different in school because my mum told me she once when she was in school knocked a pencil case off a desk, she got the cane on the hand. So even back even, you know, as recently as that, you were still allowed to punish to children like that in schools. Not just borstals, but in schools. Are you pro
1: or for? You're an English tutor,
0: Wayne.
1: Has there ever been any times you want
0: to take out the cane? Dude, there have been plenty. Good thing I teach online, so I can't actually, the best I can do is actually just remove them from the classroom digitally. What
1: what is the digital version of the cane? Can you just shut your laptop off? You can mute them. You can mute them. I work on
0: Zoom, so you can mute them. Well, is that the new digital version of punishment? Or you have things called breakout rooms where you can, but I think that's more for group work. Like, I'll put you two here, you two here discuss something. But like, maybe I'll just put you in a breakout room and just not refer to Wait, you there, again there is detention for online teaching no I think it's for group work like oh, right. I thought but, you... but I'm sure there's a way you could abuse that I, I just imagine some
1: <laughs> pu- some poor kid in the top left hand of his screen
0: not being able to speak to the other mates no but I'd be like, like okay punishment you have to do the dishes and vacuum <laughs> your house that would actually be great but that's what essentially what the bostles were again they were completely phased out replaced with what we call now like young offenders institutes youth, they custody have, youth custody exactly but they have left a kind of legacy much like the Magdalene magdalene laundries left in ireland uh you seen the magdalene sisters where women young girls usually were sent to these laundries and it was the same kind of thing it was inhumane conditions it was inhumane treatment and eventually they were shut down a lot later than you would expect actually really yeah what is it with this country i think do we just (laughs) like punishment i don't know i think it's the whole spare the rod spoil the child thing the stiff
1: upper lip mentality. That Do as I say. Do as I say. That
0: kind of thing hammered it into them. If you've anyone's listened to the song, I'm sure you've heard it, Another Brick in the Wall. That's mm-hmm. written by Roger Waters. The Pink Floyd song, that was about his unhappy experience. Are we still allowed to mention Roger Waters? I, I'm not sure now. <laughs> what I've read in the news, I'm pretty sure we're not. Uh, is, is Roger Waters been cancelled now? What's he doing now? He Have they not to-
1: attacked our Ken Loach?
0: I think so. What is happening? <laughs> everybody's getting, get all the people we like is getting attacked. Even people we don't really like. Here's the attacked. weird thing. They're coming for the liberals now. Yeah. yeah. Everybody is just turning on everybody. It's crazy out there, people. Yeah. <laughs> Be careful. Do you know what's happened? What now? We've
1: resurrected Mary fucking Whitehouse. I think we have.
0: I think <laughs> her ghost has come back to life to haunt us. I
1: think so. Now she she's getting her say now. She's attacking all the liberals.
0: So would Cliff Richard, but he's still alive. Oh, well. <laughs> And the, the film itself, this Borstal film, Scum, yes. it's set in the late 70s. So it's kind of set around about the time it was made. Yeah, it's, it's
1: a contemporary film. And as we said, 1977 was the TV BBC version that was banned until 84. It was showed on Channel 4. But in the meantime, because of this banning, this stupid banning. And can I, <laughs> can I just mention something, which is something I love, right? It was banned in 77 by the BBC, okay? Yeah. But here, here's what I liked, right? Margaret Matheson was the BBC's slot producer at the time, and she believed so much in this film, despite its banning, right? She defied its ban, smuggled it out of the BBC. This is physical film we're on about back in the day. She smuggled it out of the BBC and screened it for journalists in Soho months after its initial ban in 78, leading to a relative critical praise. It was critical praise at the time. She had to get it out. She believed in it so much. And this is why these people need praise. Yes, Mm -hmm. we, we joke about the Mary White Houses who are, you know, permissive society, blah, blah, blah. But there is genuinely people out there Margaret Matheson, who is on the side of the filmmaker.
0: It's always good to see something like that. Nowadays, when a movie gets banned or when there's restrictions or when there's controversy, it's essentially free publicity, but back yeah. then you didn't have internet, you couldn't get news around as quickly.
1: Well, information wasn't disseminated as freely, so if you were banned by the TV, there wasn't any th- anywhere else to go. There was no internet, way. Mm, You couldn't get your film out any other way. It was the cinema, the TV, or little private showings. And Mm.
0: that's it. There was a real stranglehold they had on the entertainment industry. Because if you take it off TV, that's pretty much you screwed.
1: But 77, 79. What is the difference? We have the TV film and the cinematic films, so, so, so to speak. Well, within the original TV version, and here's where it is actually more subversive, okay? We have Carlin. Mm-hmm. are essentially our main character. It's, it's a very ensemble piece, but we can kind of say Carlin is somewhat of our main character, played by the great Ray Ray Winston, okay? In the original TV version, Minton had written Carlin in a homosexual relationship in the prison. Mm. Now, he eventually changed that for the actual film. He believed, and he regretted it to this day. He regrets changing that homosexual relationship to this day. And the reason he regrets that is because he thought it gave Carlin a vulnerability in a place, a borstal, where you cannot show vulnerability.
0: That would have been good. It would have added an extra layer to it. I mean, there's already a lot of, I mean, there is homophobia in the film, but if you had it as part of the lead character, it would have given an interesting dynamic because the idea with Ray Winston, Anyone that knows Ray Winston knows he's kind of made his career playing the hard man role. Yeah, he's yeah. got the, you know that thick Cockney accent. He's a tough guy. He was apparently cast in this film because the director. One reason was the director liked the way he walked. I guess that kind of wave, of, <laughs> that way of that swagger, that way of carrying yourself, like you are the top, you are the tough nut, you are like the big dog.
1: Well, do you know why I think Ray Winston encapsulates Carlin so well? Because he is terrific in this film. He Ray is great. Yeah, and as you said, that is true. He was cast because the way he walked. I'm assuming it was quite Macho walk. I think I, so, yeah. a, But Ray Winston just prior to Scum being made, he had been expelled from drama school for vandalising the head's car prior to this Scum. And he went along with a friend who was auditioning. And therefore, that's where Clark cast him. And I think there is a bit of Ray Winston, the actual Ray Winston in Carlin. He said he was a bit of a rabble rouser, a bit of a troublemaker.
0: Torag, I believe is the term he used. A bit
1: of a Torag. And I can see that. I I think he encapsulates the performance very well. He is one of the strongest points of this film.
0: I think he's probably using the part in a way like uh, Ben Kingsley did in Sexy Beast, how he said he's this vicious character, but he said after the cameras were done for the day, he was as meek as a baby because he got all the anger. I think Ray Winston maybe was like taking some of his pent-up anger because, like I say, he was a Torag, he probably got in a lot of trouble. He was able to express that in a way that he wouldn't have been allowed to do before. He could have ended up in a place like this for real.
1: Well, the interesting thing about Ray Winston is, even though this film, you know, critical success to a degree... Very well thought of, regarded now, but his career kind of hit the skids after this. He said it was a bit of his own making. He didn't make the greatest choices. He didn't come from money. I think he came from the East End of London, Hackney. His father was a fruit and veg salesman, Mm. he had a fruit and veg stall. So he came from very humble, but big. Beginnings. So when he was paid for this, when he was paid for Scum, he kind of went a little crazy. I know it wasn't obscene amounts of money. Remember, this is a small film. Yeah. But the money he got from that, he ended up plundering on, you know, just excess to a degree. And it wasn't really until the nineties when his career picked up again bizarrely enough in another kitchen sink film and actually a terrific film Gary Oldman's *Nil by Mouth Nil by Mouth yeah co- co-starring Kathy Burke who is
0: one of Ray Winston's great friends those are the classic kind of films you can see in. i seen a film not long ago from 1999 I believe called The War Zone starring Ray Winston and directed by Tim Roth not Watkins' War Game not Watkins' War Game <laughs> no that very similar kind of thing that very similar kind of kitchen sink thing some of the characters don't even have names very dark very bleak mm. very kind of off-putting But those real emotional gut punches. One similarity it has with this one, very little music you throw. I noticed that in Scum, the music is what's called diegetic, where the only music you hear other characters here so if a tv is playing or a radio is playing or somebody is singing a song that's about the only music you play a very good choice similar to castaway on the island robert zemeckis insisted there be no score no music used to emphasize that feeling of isolationism
1: and i think it works in these you know quote-unquote quasi documentary like films this is very cinema verite it's very fly on the wall you're not supposed to be you know watching this for the cinematic experience it to a degree to a degree is is quite cinematic in the s- sense of its calm use but you're supposed to just be there with Within the characters, watching the characters interact, go about their day, you're supposed to feel the grit, the grime, the grease. You're not necessarily supposed to be fawning over its (laughs) cinematography.
0: That was apparently one of the reasons that the BBC had for banning it, was the fact that it had too much of a documentary-like feel. It didn't, because we said before, it didn't feel sensationalised. So maybe that's what was so uncomfortable about it. It felt like it could be real.
1: Now, we mentioned that Winston was cast... You know, purely before, because of his walk. Yeah. Um, John Cleese in Monty Python? Yes. Minister of City Minister of silly Walks. <laughs> that would have been a different film that if turned been, That would
0: have been a very different film. That could have been a Monty Python sketch right, on his he, own.
1: Here's a little bizarre fact, okay? Before Winston was cast in this film, before he changed Clark, before he, you know... Revolutionarized Clark's mind of this film. Carlin, the character Winston plays, was originally written as a Glaswegian. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if that little change was made purely because he was so infatuated with Winston.
0: Possibly yes, or maybe because Ray Winston wasn't able to do a convincing Glaswegian accent. But you don't need that. You don't need that.
1: Glasgow, no. for you know our American friends, is always been, especially in the past, a working class city. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why maybe the character was originally
0: Glaswegian, because it has that working class roots. It has, you know, everything that goes along with that. But it works with Ray Winston's very strong Cockney accent, because the accents are very strong. It's the kind of film I can see being shown overseas necessitating subtitles, not just because of the heavy accents, but because a lot of slang is used. This movie's dialogue, it's a very interesting mix of basically foul language and very posh expressions, posh exaggerations. At one point, a guard says, he says, we're going to have your stinking hooligan guts for garters. One of those very, very British sayings. But then another, another scene, somebody else get called a wanker. So it's that very odd mix of two different styles of speaking.
1: So it, they're essentially saying the same thing, but one's very more succinctly said. <laughs> yeah, one is kind of more fluffed up. The language now, is more fluffed up. Now, tell me if I am wrong, Wayne. Mm-hmm. Tell me if I am wrong. Now, when I was watching this... Do you know the film, weirdly, weirdly, that I was thinking there was a strong comparison to? I'm going to give you three guesses. Think of a film, right? Think. I like see see what
0: you can come up with out of curiosity. Uh, Shawshank Redemption. Prayer Before Dawn. Ooh, the third one. Wayne, we're, we're going way fucking weirder. Way weirder than that? Don't make me call you a wanker. Oh, hold on. Uh, hold on. Ilse She-Wolf of the SS.
1: We're getting closer. I'm
0: going to s- give you one more guess after that. Oh, man. Come on, before that, before that. Before that, before that. Italian. It's an, oh, is it a Jello film? No, no, no. no oh, no. I'll give up. Go ahead. Salo. Pierre Paolo oh, Pasolini's oh, Celo. 120 Days of Solemn. I think
1: so. Oh, man. Thematically, it is... They're essentially saying the same thing. I I can totally see that. Do you think? Do you agree? I'm not going mad here.
0: Very theme heavy film. I think so. On the surface, yep, yep. But if you look deeper, it's about the different levels of abuse, where the abuse comes from. No, that very, very good comparison. I think.
1: See. Sometimes I I'm just so clever. <laughs> so it, it just comes out.
0: Sometimes you outdo I, yourself. I, I,
1: I outdo myself. No, I'm only joking. But both, <laughs> both completely... De- it's the power imbalance, the dehumanization. Exactly. All these things. Authoritarianism.
0: I think they would make a super, a great double feature. They would. Very different, but also very same in the thematics. I reckon you could show these films back to back. Most folk would say, I don't see what they have in common other than maybe imprisonment. But if you look deeper into the themes, you would see those... Those convergences. Is
1: that just four hours of, like, torture porn? Basically, yeah. I think so. I would
0: sit through a marathon, because I loved Sallow and I loved Scum. They're both great. They're both great Have you films. you a favourite? Um, I hate playing favourites. I think, I maybe, like, I, think I maybe like Scum a bit more. Yeah. Is that because
1: of you know, rep in the British side? Something or? like
0: that. Maybe slightly easier to sit through.
1: Uh, it's, it's very local for us. It's very, you know, identifiable. These characters, you know, we all know these characters to a degree. They're maybe... They may be somewhat different to people we know, but we all know, you know, the East End villain. We all Mm -hmm. know the
0: the characters really have that basis in reality. There, it feels like in this film you're locked up with people you know, and I think in a way that's why you can empathize with them a lot more. I know someone like that. I know that out-and-out douchebag. I know that nervous person. I know that person who's always just kind of needling at people, the one who just wants to do their time and get out of here. So it's very relatable in that sense.
1: What I really liked about this film, the the very first scene is Carlin played by Ray Winston, he's on the bus. Mm -hmm. So, from the outset, we're identifying with him. Mm -hmm. We're on his journey. We're on the journey himself. He's going to Borstal. We're going to Borstal. And we have this duality where it's like, okay, let's go. This is the journey into the heart of darkness. Let's Mm. see where we're going. We're going together. And I really like that approach. I wouldn't, I I think that was a better idea than starting
0: in the prison itself. I think it kind of was because it's bringing him towards the prison. So we are introduced to this place the same way he is. And we also get introduced at the same time to, I guess you could call it a theme in this movie, the abuse. Brought into the prison, the guards, the governor, the warders, whatever you want to call them, they immediately meet the prisoners with this horrible, demeaning language. Any idea of kind of rehabilitation, education is thrown out. We very rarely see them do anything educational. It's basically hard labor, strict, you know, rigid schedule. You need to do this, this at this time. It's kind of like military drills. This it feels like they're being enrolled in the army against their will.
1: Well, one of the goofs in this film, if we want to call them goofs, Wayne, is some of the characters in this film they have curly hair medium length hair etc well in an actual borstal you had to you know traditional short back and side haircut so that's a little goof but as we're saying it's all about this dehumanization we're going through a dehumanizing process Mm -hmm. and this is kind of the systems trying to grind you down so it can build you in its own vision and of course, when these things happen, this is where abuse takes over. Mm. When you strip somebody of their power, of their power, you become at the will of those with the stick. Mm. And very, very often,
0: that leads to abuse. Mm. And one thing that the guards often do in this film is when they greet you, especially towards the start of the film, they'll ask you your name and number. And at one point, someone complains about this, asking for the number. And the guard says, that's all you are. So that's a part of stripping of the personality, like taking their name away. And you have people who have trouble remembering their number. They get abused for it. I mean, the abuse is, there's racism, there's, uh, there's homophobic slurs thrown towards them, basically anything they can find. And these are guards are kind of slightly posh, kind of upper class, very juxtaposed with the working class inmates. And they just bully them constantly. And, and In a way, they kind of encourage abuse between the inmates as well. That's what I like, turning them against each other. Which
1: I think is interesting because, as I said, the, the opening scene is we are with Carlin on the bus and we are almost intrinsically, cinematically supposed to identify with him. Here is this guy. He's here to buck the system. He's here to change the system. Well, (laughs) that doesn't necessarily happen because at the end of the day, this is a Darwinian society within this boar stall Mm -hmm. and, you know, it is survival of the fittest. There is quote unquote daddies in this, Mm -hmm. which is the inmates themselves who are the leader of the boar stall
0: it's the top of the inmate pecking yeah, order yeah, basically yeah. and the interesting is they're kind of appointed by the guards mm-hmm. to keep them in line they have essentially unchecked power what it made me think of in fascist society how you have your secret police like you had like your KGB in yeah. russia for example these people who are sent in they can essentially do what they want Almost within reason, but then again, there's, their whole job is just to bully people, to pick on people. They'll do things like, uh, at one point, one of them offers a radio to somebody as a yeah. gift, and the guy doesn't take it. I'm like, smart move, because I know what's going to happen. He's going to offer the radio as a gift. Mm. A guard's going to come and say, where did you get this radio? That is exactly what happened. So even just setting people up into situations like this.
1: But what did you think of the Carlin character, Ray Winston? Okay, he's he doesn't buck the system. You think he's there to challenge the status quo, but in many regards, when he upholds the status quo, he becomes a status quo because you can't, and I think this is the main theme of this film you can't fight the system. The system will always win, its apparatus is too large. Hmm. You may be 20 strong people within that prison, within that boar but at the end of the day, this is the power structure, Wade. This is the hierarchy of society. You can't change that by a a mere riot. You can't change that. You can't buck the system. You become what the system wants you to be. I think that's a lot of what this film is saying.
0: I think, in a sense, there's a kind of subversive element there where you'd expect carlin being the hero being the lead he's the one that bucks the system it feels like actually he just wants to do the thing where he just keeps his head down and goes along it because there's another inmate called archer he's a philosophical trainee kind of anarchic as well peaceful protest he essentially needles the system as much as he can and that in census Carl, and Carl's like, why can't you just go along? Why can't you just keep your head down? That feels like an attitude the guards want you to have. Well, because if you want to just go along with the system, you're never going to fight against it.
1: You say that, look, Archer, played by Mick Ford, is, you know, as good as Ray Winston is in this film, I think Archer's the character
0: I like the best. He's always my favourite character. And
1: you said, he, he's not going along with the system. He is bucking it in his own way. And he, to me, Archer represented the 60s ideals, the early 70s ideas. He's very more, much more bohemian, intellectual. In a sense, you know, till you... Not to disparage or to prop him up, he's more middle class. Because we're on about class, this film is very much about class, but he speaks at a you know, he's more well spoken, he wants you know better literature, for example. Not then that things necessarily make you middle class, but you can you kind of get the idea that he's from a more middle class background. So you could almost say he's more influenced by, you know, Gandhi, the passive resistance. Archer's type of resistance is He's vegetarian, yes he claims to be vegetarian, therefore he can't wear the leather shoes, therefore he goes <laughs> barefoot. He has these little ways uh getting at the wardens, getting at the superiors it's as I said it's a passive resistance, whereas the carlins, the more you know the macho guys the more they're brute force, they're more mm-hmm. physical, tactile, they're going to you know they're going to punch the s- system in the face, whereas Archer is going to you know transgress that line in more subtle ways, more manipulative ways, more
0: mindful ways. He's got that feeling of the conscientious objector. Right. And he does his rebelling kind of within a limit. He knows that he can only push it so far. So like you say, he'll refuse to eat certain foods. He'll refuse to wear the leather boots, obviously because it's animal products. He'll even complain about the kind of books that come through the library. These little things which really inconvenience the higher-ups, but he can't really be punished for it because he's not pushing it too far. Carlin's the kind of guy who, if someone crossed him, he would go and beat them up. But that would bring reprisals upon him. So he's doing it in a much more subtle way. And there's a blatant hypocrisy among... The guards, because, for example, one of the, the governors says to Colin, There is no violence here. <laughs> the rest of the movie would attest to that being incorrect. Another one is there's a, a black inmate whose name is Angel. He's told by the guards, uh, he said, Some of the other inmates, they can be prejudiced. And then they produce, they proceed to racially abuse him throughout the entire film. There
1: is so much casual racism that I think if somebody wasn't prepared for that, they'd be like, "My God, th- why, why is the quote-unquote, you know, anti-hero of this film mm. using racial epithets?" Everybody says it. There mm. is not a single character within this film who, if you are looking for a clear moral black and white conscience, you're going to get. I like that. I like that. Not, I'm not necessarily meaning everything, but mm. I, I like how it's. We're allowed to dislike our main characters at some points, mm-hmm. who we're uh, who are identifying with. We're allowed to m- them to operate in a moral grey area. Mm. I, this is what is getting lost in cinema if this was a modern film Wayne mm-hmm. if this was especially a mainstream modern film Carlin played by Winston he'd be there and he'd be solely there to buck the system he'd mm-hmm. stand there you know defying about over everything he'd be a shining a knight in shining
0: armour but he's not yeah, for all you WWE fans he would be like John Cena at his peak the goody two shoes Superman kind of thing where he's constantly beating down constant adversity no I'm not going to go to the dark side no i'm gonna be the good guy
1: i had never ever (laughs) ever i'm not gonna reiterate that once more ever Thought we were getting a WWE
0: or a John Cena <laughs> reference in 1979's Scum. It did just come to my mind just there because we've talked about that great moral grey area. I like how the film doesn't paint as warden's bad, inmates good, good versus evil kind of thing. It shows that there are those dynamics, those interesting aspects to human personality. We're not; these people aren't just good. These people aren't just bad. It did remind me of. Did you see the film from a few years ago, uh, Coda? I think it was. No. What I liked about that is the deaf family are kind of the main characters in the film, but I like how it didn't paint them as being angelic. Like, you see the deaf family members were supposed to empathise with them, but they do bad things, they say bad things, they treat people badly occasionally. It's not just the black and white, these people good, these people evil. Because
1: it's human to error, and this is what gets mistaken, and, you know, for if you want to say the culture wars, or whatever stupid zeitgeist term you want to say, but that gets lost because... You're wanting somebody to solely identify with. So they are the good guy. Mm-hmm. And they are going to, you know, right the wrongs of society. And society doesn't work like that. Mm.
0: It's been positioned as the classic you versus them thing.
1: And I don't think that would thematically make sense for the film Alan Clark is trying to say. He's he is saying and he is pointing out the ills of society, the ills of the system, the failures of the system. But at the same time he's while he's saying these are awful injustices. Mm-hmm. He's saying these are upheld. you can't change them. You can't. It's like, okay, the borestals got changed. We still have prisons where yeah. <laughs> most people are recidivist inmates people are still committing crimes when they come out of prison.
0: And if they show you these trainees, these inmates who are acting like this, it's saying, look at the monster our system created. These people are in borstals. These people are in this re-education system. It's obviously not worked. They're still terrible people. And the question is, what happens when they get let out of prison? They've not made them any better. They've not rehabilitated them. They've not learned anything. If anything, they've just got worse when they've been in the borstal.
1: Well, Archer states, there is this very, very great polemic scene between Hmm. Archer, and a warden and the warden is nearing the end of his service he's near his retirement prior to this he'd worked in the prison service and he thought right this is going to be an easier job i'm in the borstals, and there's this conversation about are borstals necessary etc etc and archer states in this conversation and i think this pertains to what we're saying he says the punitive system does not work i mean my experience of borstal convinces me that more criminal acts are imposed on prisoners than by criminals on society if you, if you are in this system, if you're in this area where damage is taking place, where punishment is constantly taking place, where you're constantly denigrated... Mm-hmm. How would you rebuild into a functional person? Exactly. Where is
0: the re- reformation in that? When you're just expecting that abuse all of the time and you can see it's kind of hammered into them. There's so many scenes in this movie where say somebody gets beaten up like maybe the daddy and his gang will come and they'll beat someone up. Someone will get jumped. Someone will get attacked. The wardens will come up and say, what happened? There's never a single instance when they say such and such beat me up. It's mm-hmm. never, it's I fell, I tripped. Carlin gets beaten up. He's got this huge bruise on his face. Mm-hmm. What happened? Oh, I fell down the stairs. I'm not used to the concrete it's the classic snitches get stitches idea Mm -hmm. so they know if they say anything not only are the wardens going to punish you the people who you snitched on they'll punish you as well so it's this constant cycle of abuse so what what do you think that is saying do you think even the egregious acts the inmates
1: carry out on one another they won't snitch on each other we know the functional reasons you know you get punitive action against you but it also saying that even though we hate each other, we're inmates, we hate each other, we have more in common than those looking out for us.
0: They are still kind of united in a way. They do have a common enemy. Right. But the problem is the common enemy is turning them against each other by appointing this daddy who has essentially unchecked power. So the only way, with Ray Winston, with Carlin, he essentially starts to take over only when he's pushed, really. It right. feels like he would just do his time normally archer would get back in his own way but carlin is really pushed into that position you, you
1: think that you think carlin would have sat and waited his time out possibly you think you think it depends how far he, he was shoved when he enters the borstal he's positioned as the big tough guy he, i think it's referenced in a way they he, do here's the new hard man
0: do you think in a way he was just biding this time he was going to overtake anyway possibly but what the what happened to him just kind of precipitated yeah. it because we found this is not first time in a Borstal no. he was actually brought over because in his previous Borstal he hit a cop mm. and of course everyone says oh you hit a cop and he says well he attacked me first <laughs> but who is going to believe Carlin right. who on the outside mm. is going to believe one of the inmates you see these people living in normal society they look at Borstals and think oh these people are horrible they're the scum of the earth Oh, the person said it was self defence of course they would say something like that so there are people they have really no defense. No one's gonna believe what they say.
1: Do you know what one of the most dehumanizing aspects of this film was? There is a black inmate called Toyn. Yeah. He gets a letter from home. And I think in the letter it says, it references that Candy has died. Yeah. And now there is this female warden who is quite sympathetic in the sense within the system itself in the parameters that they set up. And she says, Oh, who who is this? Is this your dog? Is this your pet? And he's like, No, it's my wife. Mm. It's it's this dehumanizing aspect, this throwing away of the outside world. It's so frivolous, it's so stupid, it's so they're treated as so subhuman yeah all these machinations we forget we just see them as the number. we see them as the bore still in, may yeah on the outside world, you know he's married now he's got now he's a widow
0: mm mm-hmm. and that, that, that's the way of position they're supposed to be like that. It's like in full metal jacket, you know when Hartman says you know you're you're nothing more than pukes, you're maggots, you're not mm-hmm. even human beings. It's that very thing, and how can you rehabilitate? How can you reintroduce that person as a working member of society if you're gonna treat them like that if they're gonna have this mentality in the prison where nothing they do matters. Mm-hmm. Nothing happens to them matters, and nothing happens to the loved one matters either. This is just a progression, okay? You have
1: violence, you have sadism, you also, and I think this makes quite a poignant political polemic which is evident in prison systems and it makes a larger point is the sexual violence mm-hmm. because there is a young guy a young kid he's very small he's very you know quite puny just so to speak and he is gang raped by i think it's three men yes three older inmates and it was getting me thinking okay what is this these men who gang raped but they're not homosexual no this is not some kind of gratification this isn't some kind of It's all about sadism, and I was thinking, right, why is this? Sexual violence is a weapon. Why is he gang-raped? And I was looking, right, sexual violence. Even in ancient Greece, the taking of a woman during war was, it was classed as fair game, Mm. as the conquered women were, quote, legitimate booty, useful as wives, concubines, slave labor, or battle camp trophy. Mm. Now, this is what happens within a war zone, So what are we doing, okay? We know, for example, the Chechen War, the Iraq War, the name every single war, and there is sexual violence used as a threat. Now, if we believe those things happen in ancient Greek wars, in modern wars, but they're also happening within the prison system, within the Borstal system. So could you say the powers that be within the Borstal system, within the system itself, are creating a warlike zone within these young people?
0: Yeah, it's the turning inmates against each other thing. And it makes it worse that the fact that they do this, they commit the sexual act on Davies, who is, like you say, the meekest prisoner. He doesn't interfere with anybody. He's the one that's had an, a radio offered to him earlier. And one of the guards, a guy called Sands, he comes along, he looks through the greenhouse, he sees yep. the sexual assault taking place. What does he do? Nothing. He smiles. He smiles and he walks away. Well, he waits until it, it's over. And then he walks in and says, what happened to you, Davies? What does Davies say? I fell. He's lying on the ground. He's had his trousers and his yeah, pants yeah. pulled down, and he says, "I fell." Because they don't care. No, they don't care. If he had said he'd had been sexually assaulted, what would he have done then? Or what you were, Puff Davies, yeah. something like that. They're, they're, they're non-humans. It's they're, a no-win situation. You talk about these rapes during war times, these sexual assaults. The property. Yeah. If we beat these people, they'll belong to us now. You're my possession. You will do what I say. Yes, and it's depressing that that could you know conflict throughout history because when you have these wars, it's kind of. Murky areas; these things can happen. No one could even notice because everyone's focused on who's going to win the war. So, in a way, it is a battlefield. It is a war That's what zone. The system
1: has created people to turn against one another. They're endorsing; bru- it is essentially politically endorsed <laughs> brutality.
0: That's why they set up the daddy gang. The daddy gang. If the wardens say, "Sort this person out," we'll go and take care of this person. Okay. Yeah.
1: Serious film. Can you sit through this without a single smile when they keep saying, "I'm your daddy"? <laughs> <laughs> i did like hearing that. i was like
0: <laughs> so, i'm the daddy now yeah. it was said so seriously I was it like, was what? said very very seriously i do like it is kind of a funny oh, yeah, of, like, uh, interesting little like yeah. funny juxtaposition of these yeah. hard men like i'm your daddy kind of thing oh, good for you <laughs> And it does feed into the whole abusive power system. It was making me think, you've, I presumed maybe read Animal Farm before. I've not. In that book, or in the story, I'm sure a lot of people know, the animals take over the farm. They kick out the previous leader. The pigs rise to prominence. They become the leaders. It did make me think, Carlin has taken over now. Are we supposed to see that in a positive? Maybe in the kind of short term it is. But in the long term, what's to say he's not going to end up being worse as things go down the line. Because that was Orwell's criticism. It's not the revolution that's the problem, it's the leaders in charge, the power going to their heads.
1: It doesn't change. It doesn't change. I think that's, that's thematically the point. You, you can't change within the system itself. If the system itself hasn't changed, the participants can't change. You're just upholding the system, and I think that's proven within Carlin's own behavior. He becomes a bully. He becomes authoritative to the other inmates. He doesn't change. He, be- he becomes what he replaced.
0: Exactly. And if you have if you're the, if the system has power, the system has control. It's not going to want you to change. Exactly. People in power, the last thing they want is to lose their power because then they have nothing. Then they are exposed to the real world. Well, what is one of the last scenes in this film, Wayne? It's a riot. Mm. Why did they riot? because of davies
1: because because he kills himself because
0: he ends up killing himself yeah what i did like about this i thought this was very effectively done rather than showing davies go through the sexual assault leaving and then coming back to him after he's dead we follow him afterwards we really see his misery we see the repercussions we see him looking sad he's way more withdrawn than normal and it kind of escalates he tries to talk to a guard who just tells him to piss off goes back to his cell and he's ignored after that and he ends up taking his own life it's a Real gut punch, like I say, because there's no music in this film, you are left to hear what the inmates would be hearing.
1: So what is that? Is that we have to have something dramatic happen before things change? Mm. Because the riot after this, they kick up a fuss, and did you know, funnily enough, I think Mick Ford was saying it, who played Archer, that real Borstal boys came to this riot. Oh, yeah. They were chosen as extras, <laughs> and they had to be checked because they came for a fight. Mm-hmm. They came with, you know, whatever, knives in their pockets and and whatnot and the crew had to you know give them a good pat down (laughs) and they said look we're fighting the power you're not fighting each other because it's right scene is supposed to be is it would you say it's more of a solidifying a solidarity kind of moment for the inmates where they've realized the abuse it took this death of davis and
0: now, once and for all, they're going to take no more. Because that Toyn guy you mentioned earlier, yeah. he was told his wife had died. He was transferred to another Borstal yeah. and he ended up killing himself there. Yeah. So that was kind of a shocking moment. But it's this one. I think it's the fact it happens in that prison. Someone finds Davis in the morning and he's dead. And that brings them all together. It's kind of uniting them themselves against the machine. Despite all the differences they have, they have more in common with each other than they do with the system. Would you say... It's Hmm. their rage against the machine. I think it probably is. Yeah, I think so. I think that's eventually what they have to conquer because they chant dead Dead. over and over again, dead over and over again. And the film ends on essentially a silent prayer from the government governor who's very Christian, we should say this is the juxtaposition. There's all this barbarity
1: he is overseeing, yet he is supposed to be a man of the cloth. Yes. It's that cloak of false
0: righteousness. You can justify a lot if you use religion. Exactly like when we talked about we did our leech episode, the idea is this the lead character, David, this kind of holy man, but all these things he does not becoming of one
1: what does he say was one of the last things he says there is no violence in this prison yes exactly. he says that at
0: one point so we've went through the riot
1: we've <laughs> yeah. seen all these machinations we've discussed all the you know the thematics and there is no violence there is apparently no
0: violence so why has he not seen the violence maybe it's The idea of the outside world not wanting to see the violence, wanting to ignore it. Because we end on silent prayer. The film ends essentially on silence. You'd think the big climactic riot would be the end, but it's not. It's the silent prayer for Davies.
1: Or, in their own twisted mind, because the people in this film, you know, the, the, the adults, as we should say, the wardens, are they representing the power system? Of course. So, this film is controversially, rightfully, and quite indignantly called scum yeah which is obviously used to refer to the inmates because i'm assuming that's what the wardens think of them scum Mm -hmm. so in their way they're saying there is no violence Mm -hmm. does that mean because they've contained the violence to the quote-unquote scum population They've took them off the streets and they're not committing the violence there.
0: Mm, exactly. It's taking place behind closed doors right. so we can pretend it didn't happen. Right. It's a one rule for you, one rule for us kind of thing. We can do violence to you, but that's not really violence. That's just us keeping you straight. And this is what
1: all the pricks thought at the time. This <laughs> is why they hated this film, Wayne. They hated them shining a light on the barbarity what was going on within the
0: system. It was too real because there was someone who referred to the 70s as, you you talk about the Battle of Britain, they say it's our finest hour. The 70s in the UK was referred referred to as our unfinest hour you look what was going on back at the time you had high levels of inflation uh, high levels of interest strikes were going on there was lots of battles between workers and governments discrimination was rampant there's a musician I was reading about on a Quora I think it was uh, Chris Moore and he said back in the 70s when he grew up he said people were openly racist and homophobic if I repeated any of the jokes I knew as a teenager I'd probably get arrested but at the time we didn't see any harmony it was just normality I think This film, Scum, represents the UK, a microcosm of what was going on at the time. You talk about condensing all of those violent things into one prison. This is like condensing all of the problems of the UK into one movie, into one situation. Very powerful film. I really like this. Absolutely. Yeah, I love this film. I first seen it maybe, I think, 2015, 2016. Yeah this was my first view and after
1: many many years still mm-hmm. powerful. Mm-hmm. I mean this is 79 based on a 77 TV version. Yeah holds all the power away. It it still holds the power to this day because a lot of the issues, they've never really went away. They've Mm. just been shifted or changed
0: name or called something else. Yeah, or maybe, all right, there's another issue now, right, we'll talk about this one, like a kind of smoke screen because it's the kind of thing where you can look back and you can say now, oh, it was horrible back then. Imagine being in a Borstal would have been dreadful. But at the time, It really made people uncomfortable because it was a reality. They can't say, oh, this was in the past, this was happening now. I think it really touched a nerve. I think that's what upset a lot of people. Obviously not your White Houses who just seen violence or they've seen sexual exploitation. We have to get rid of that because that can have absolutely no moral value whatsoever. But for a lot of people, I think they just didn't like seeing their own country portrayed in such a way. And this is the power of Alan Clark quite a maligned
1: figure. He's, he doesn't have the the sway of a Ken Loach or a Mike Lee. And I think a lot of this has to do with his relatively early death in, I think it was 1990. Mm. He was only 50-something years old. He's a powerful filmmaker, Wayne, an important filmmaker. And that's shown in his influence, for example, on Gus Van Sands, you know, the art house directors. And he's not going away. Alan Clark will live. His revolutionary status will live. And filmmakers will pick this up. Generations will pick this up. The youth will pick it up. And his work will continue to retain its power. And that's it. Episode 54 of In Film We Trust is in the can. So once again, I'm Liam. I'm Wayne. Join us next time as we will discuss, dissect and deep dive all things film. From the obscure to the mainstream.